Welcome to the Hank and Herb Show. I'm Andre Kimo Stone Guest, one of three extraordinary hosts of this show. We got my man Haroon Shabazz, who's in Baltimore, Maryland. What's going on, Haroon? Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum Islam, black man. And we got Chris Fun. Chris doesn't all like like for us to tell where he's at. I think he's in the witness protection program. Where you at, Chris? I am in the lovely town of Capitol Heights, Maryland. Capitol Heights, Maryland. About a, about a mile or two outside the DC line. Uh, the DC line. You over there by that that football stadium of the unnamed yeah. football team, right? I walked up there this morning. They wouldn't let us walk the parking lot. The Washington football team. The Washington football team. I think Daniel Snyder's just being obstinate in his in his ways to not give them a team. That's his protest. But that's a that's a subject for another show. On today's show, we're going to discuss a piece I wrote more than two years ago called Black Panther and the Importance of Art as Propaganda. So you may ask yourself a question, why are we talking about a piece I wrote two years ago? Because the piece is actually about the importance of art as propaganda, as, as uh, W.E. Du Bois pointed out many, many, many years ago in, in the uh, magazine, The Crisis. And the reason I brought this up for our discussion today is because I thought about it when uh, the actor Chadwick Boseman passed away because of, of all of the roles that he played, the vast majority of them were actually heroes. He played Thurgood Marshall, he played Jackie Robinson. Who else did he play? I'm missing some folks. Uh, James Brown. James Brown, right. Yeah, so he, uh, he, when he passed away, I think it was a gut punch, along with all the other gut punches that we are suffering here in 2020. So I wanted to uh, unearth this piece and talk about the importance of role models and talk talk about the importance of the black image uh, in today's media. And uh, so we're gonna toss it around and chop it up. I've had some spirited discussions over the years with Brother Shabazz about this and Chris and I argue about this all the time. So this is gonna be a great show, but we have a special guest with us today and the first woman to make it on the Her Hank and Herb show. We've only had, this is our third, so we're not discriminating. Yeah, yeah get that straight. Yes, yeah, right. right. It's not like we've had right. 20 shows like this and this is, is the first woman. Club. That's right. No, we don't play that. We have Sister Lynn Toy, who is joining us from South Orange, New Jersey. So for those of you who don't know, Sister Toy is an artist. She is a, I had your bio up there. She is an artist, a curator, and chief administrative officer at Harlem School of the Arts. All right. She's a bunch of other things, too, but I'll let her tell you about that as we get into it. How are you doing, Sister Toy? I am doing very well. It's good to be in the Northeast. Um, where we still have warm weather, thank goodness. So we are social distancing mm -hmm. and enjoying what we can. And I'm thrilled to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Uh, you all can't see, but Sister Toy's got like some beautiful art behind her. Um, she's putting us all to shame. You know, I don't know what you got behind you, Haroon, but, uh, and then Chris Not has- Not much, I can tell you that much. Chris has Monk. I don't have anything behind me, but yeah, that's some beautiful art behind you there, Sister Toy. We're going to get a chance to talk about some of that. But let's, uh, let's just open it up right now. W, in, in the piece, before I get to W.B. Du Bois, in the piece, I talked about how when the um, movie Black Panther opened back in 2018, February 16th, 2018, I wrote that I hadn't seen anything like that since November 4th of 2008 when Barack Obama was nominated, it was like a national holiday for black people. And when that movement opened, people had lost their minds. And they were like, oh my God, we finally got a Marvel movie and it's all about us. And at first I was like, man, they tripping. Why are they tripping so hard? But then I, I thought about 
the W.E.B. Du Bois quote, which is, all art is propaganda and ever must be, despite the wailing of the purest. I do not care a damn for any art that is not used for propaganda, but I do care when propaganda is confined to one side while the other is stripped and silent. Dr. Du Bois said that in a 1926 article, article in the NAACP's publication, The Crisis. So let's, ladies first, Sister Toy, number one, what do you think about that quote and what do you think about it in relation to uh, Black Panther when it first came out? Well, the fact that it was such a mythical, impossible to imagine setting that was created before our eyes um, is what brought the magic. And uh, the, the word propaganda historically has, has frequently meant something negative, you know, or, or something untrue or something that um, was, was magnified or embellished. And in this case, I believe what Du Bois is talking about is to propel a story or a narrative. And in this case, it was brought to life, a black superhero. Amazing. Did you go on opening night? Did you see it? Did I did not see like it on opening else? night. Uh, shortly thereafter, I did go see it for the first time. And then there was a second time. And obviously the story was amazing. But when I really got into the concept of, of the staging and the costuming and the, the dialect coaches and the narrative around, you know, girls in science and so, so many layers of how it shattered so many myths, um, I, I think we will still, for generations to come, be um, interpreting and understanding all of the layers of how powerful that was. Yeah, and it's getting... Um another sort of full viewing now that Brother Bozeman has passed away. Uh, Brother Fun, did you, did you line up, did you have your popcorn all lined up and your Twizzlers and all that the first night? No, me, man. I would tear up a bag of Twizzlers. I don't think, I can't remember, but I know I didn't see it on the first night, but I, I do remember seeing it very early. And I, I remember that I live in a probably 95% black county and it was hard. It was probably impossible to go at night. I remember going like to one of those 11 a.m. showings <laughs> where you got to have the theater to yourself and it was still packed. So I'm pretty sure I saw it like the first week. Did you like it? Of course I loved it, man. I, I think I'm a comic book guy myself. Man, oh, I'm that's right. Book. I forgot you wanted them I got nerds. about 20 Black Panther comic books in this drawer, actually. Yeah, that's I, right. You, you, you're, you, you draw too. You got like that. Yeah, you're a super nerd. Oh, here we go. <laughs> but yeah, what, just like what she said, the... Even everything she said, of course, I agree with, but even the idea of just putting your $10 or however much it costs down at like a vote to say, look, when y'all put things out that look like this and portray us like this, we will put our money into this even more than the trash that you normally put out. I think like I could have, I would have bought a ticket to it even if I couldn't make it, you know, just to vote with your money to show that this is possible. Because they always say, Oh, we didn't have a black league because we didn't think it was so. We we know that's not true. Brother Shabazz, what about you? Did you line up? Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> didn't line up. <laughs> let me let is. me tell you why. I have a good excuse, right? Um, so when this came out, I could have sworn that um that this was about the Black Panther Party of the 1960s <laughs> and the revolution and all of this other stuff, right? And everybody was talking buzz and I I didn't bother to look into it. I just thought, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. 
And when I found out it was a cartoon, I'm like, <laughs> comic strip, I, what is this? And my whole family was so excited. I mean, so much so that in, um, in the Washington DC area, at one point you can like, if you wanted your whole family or the crew to go, you could buy like 30 or 40 or 50 tickets at one time. So you could all sit together. And so all of my family, I mean a good 35 members of them, and they, and they decided to dress up for the occasion, dressing in like my sister dressed up like Angela Davis and, you know, various, you know, you know, different people in history, dressing up like it was the 1960s and this type of thing. Well, they must have thought it was about the Black Panther Party, too. <laughs> you, this is what threw me off. Like, oh. this is, no, this is what threw me off. They knew all along what it was. They looked at the trailers. That's what threw me off about this. And so I poo-pooed the idea. Now, of course, I said, this is great. You know, this is fantastic that Black folks will make some money. They got this, you know, they, they got this superhero out there and that type of thing. And then about, I guess about six weeks, because it, it took about six, seven weeks for it to die down where you could get a, a ticket, you know, this type of thing. Well, how but long was then, it before, before you realized that it wasn't? that it was what it actually was. No, no, shortly thereafter that oh, okay. um, my, um, when my family went to see it, right, I realized a couple of days in that, hey, this is, this is what the movie's about. But I still waited five or six weeks before I actually went to see the movie. And then when I sat down and just like Sister Lynn, I was blown away, right? I mean, it was a beautiful thing. All the symbolism, all the imagery, the, 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 the background story about this, you know, this far off wonderland that is secret, nobody knew about it. No, it was, a, it was a powerful thing to watch. I mean, I enjoyed the movie, but if I'm honest, right, straight up and down, there was a couple things that bothered me in the movie. One was um, Michael B. Jordan's character, the American Negro from Oakland. He's the villain, right? Why is the American Negro always gotta be the villain, right? So it's like the Africans, the other of the American Negro are the superheroes, right? But the American Negro is a problem. So that's number one. Number two is the white man was the savior, right? The CIA guy and all that stuff. So like, it's like, come on, man. It's like come the on, old man, tropes. What? We're going to get it on the big screen. <laughs> oh, so those were, those were the two conditions, right? In yeah, order for it to work? Yeah, to get it greenlighted. Yeah, yeah here's the thing, right? I have to disagree with you about the black American being the villain. Shouldn't we be the villain? <laughs> right, this type of thing, because in this whole, the psychology of black self-esteem, the Negro in America puts themselves at the top of the pyramid, right? Because of their prox proximity to whiteness, we think that we're superior to every other Negro on the planet. Caribbean, West Indian Negroes, um, you know, you know uh, native Africans themselves, that type of indigenous Africans themselves. And so in a sense, we should like step back for a moment, right? This is propaganda. This is a positive right. self-image. So, 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 so why we should to, we need to be humbled a little bit, right? Running absolutely. around talking about we at the top of the black food chain. I get. I mean, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, I, I, I'll buy that one. So, so now I didn't I, see him as a villain myself. I mean, you didn't. If That's, we want to get deep, I mean, I really thought he wasn't actually a villain. What was he? He was just, you know, another form of thinking. He was another <laughs> protagonist. <laughs> You know, he represented, 
another perspective of the, as my man Haroon says, the so-called. Was he? Was he? Uh, so maybe he wasn't a villain. Was he an anti-hero? Is that? A, can we use that term? Yeah, that'll work. That works. Anti-hero, right? That's because he was your say, hero. Being as how I'm a nerd, man, the character in the comic book was black too. Now, so. Well, I mean, I would hope so. Are you talking? His name is the name of the comic is Black Panther. Are you talking right, about no, Killmonger? He's oh, an Killmonger. Oh, okay. Black villain in the comic book. You know. I'm okay. Well, see, you have a soft space in your heart for him because, you know, you're a comic book guy. No, I'm just, you know, I'm all about facts, Dre. You know, no, you found, no he's about facts. S Sister Tori, did you uh, did you see any of that madness that I saw that was swimming around in my sick head when you saw the movie? Well, what's interesting, I I'm pleased to, um, you know, shake it up in terms of gender here in this conversation because yeah. my greatest things that I walked away with, of course, it was the story as a whole, but I was really stuck on that girl, the sister, her yeah. masterminding of the science. Yeah, That's near and dear to me because, you know, I grew up with dreams of uh, a career in science. I have an engineering degree. There's very few women in that field. There's very few black women in that field. So to see her be in such command and have so much power through her brilliance and through the science, that was one huge takeaway. Then the other thing that I am is a visual artist. And I understand that for you to look at all that on the screen, in addition to the acting, the imagery, and I'm extremely proud of Ruth Carter, the costume. Yes, Ruth. And how she was the first African-American to win an Academy Award. So, you know, in the subsequent times that I saw it, I'm breaking down all of these elements that pulled it together. Um, and so I wasn't as focused on those male characters as I was on what was happening with the women. Well, you know, as a quick side note, my daughter, Kennedy, uh, when she was in high school, she went to a performing arts uh, high school in Pittsburgh, and she was a costume design major. And she got a chance to work with Ruth Carter and Costanza Romero, who's August Wilson's widow, who's a costume designer as well. And she had designs and plans on becoming a costume designer for play, you know, for Broadway and Hollywood. And they they shut down her program at her high school. Oh my goodness. And if they had not shut that program down, she might be out there. I mean, she's a speech language pathologist now getting her master's degree, but I always think about that because she got a chance to work with Ruth and Ruth gave her her number and was like, look, you know, <laughs> it's so wow. I was like, when I, when I hear Ruth Carter's name, I think that could be my daughter. But, <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, but the fact that Ruth blazed a trail and there yes. were so many different um, aspects of this movie that was trailblazing, but that's one, that now you have black girls who believe that they can grow up and do this kind of work on a big screen. It's a career maybe somebody never heard of. Chris, I want to get back to something you were talking about, because this is a popular refrain I hear from black folks all the time. It's like, I'm going to give you, I'm going to show to you, Mr. Hollywood, that we are worthy of you making stories and movies about us, because I'm going to give you the money. I'm going to show to you I'm going to give you my money and show you and vote with my dollars so you will make more movies about us, right? I mean, is that fair? I mean, do we really need somebody else to make movies about us? Somebody else. Huh? You said somebody else? Well, you said, yeah. You said because the whole thing is the reason we don't choose a black lead is because, you know, we, it, it won't sell, right? Or it, it won't, we won't make money off of it. But I mean, we're, there's a, is a certain level of affirmation. It's external affirmation in that. It's like, I'm going to show you, as opposed to just making your own movies for yourself, like somebody like Tyler Perry does. See, that's where, see, this is where we always argue, Andre. Well, that's why we got the show, baby. 
But why can't we do both? We can do both. We can do Tyler Perry, and we can do play by these these really backwards rules that they set in front of you. You know, we can have both. You can have the Negro League and the Major Leagues at the same time if you want. Well, the like, big differentiator is money. It takes right. it costs money. Right. The resources aren't the same. <laughs> like, well, Tyler Perry actually, I, I guess that argument is becoming smaller because. Mm -hmm. He got he's getting he's got the resources. Yeah, right he's now. Dead, yeah. But he had to get there, you know? Yeah, yeah, to get there. But there's the rub, uh, Dre. It's the the question is the price of a mission, right? Um, and one thing I love about your article, right? It it states what the problem is, and then it states what the possible solution is, right? You you uh you talked about the fact that black folks we suffer from self-hate. You know, Malcolm X actually had said. Um, the quote from him, America's greatest crime against the black man was not slavery or lynching, but that it that he was taught to wear a mask of self-hate and self-doubt. And then you go on to talk about divorce and what his solution was, right? Propaganda, right? And using art um, as a propaganda to raise black self-esteem and, and black imagery, right? This type of thing. But then that brings us back to the price of a mission. So if you look at the various arts that Black folks are involved in, literature, music, television, and film, the, the stage, right? The most affordable, the price of a mission is probably literature, right? The one that has the most impact today is probably music. But the one that is most expensive by far is film and television, right? This type of thing. And then this is where we run into a problem. The question is, is can Black Panther be replicated? Right. That's the deal. And, and we know from prior experience, when you talk about green lighting a movie, there's two types of green lights that the powers to be in Hollywood go for, right? Either you have Black life with a white hero somewhere in there, or you have a Black person and they're immersed in a white world. Those are the two things that are. Well, well, well you, you're, you're missing one. What's that? Black pathology. Well, you know, black pathology is there all along, but that's not commercially, like, like for instance, now I don't know if you want to put this in the, in the same category, but like, uh, the, like uh, for instance, uh, 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 what, was, what was the movie? Um, uh, the movie Precious, for instance, right? right. That was a deep and profound and heavy movie, 12 Years a Slave. Same thing, talking about all kinds of horrible things. Well, those weren't pathology, they, those weren't pathology for pathology's sake. No, it wasn't pathology for pathology's sake, but what, what I'm trying to say here, right, is they, they're not considered commercially viable. Right. Right, you see what I'm saying? And then when you talk about black pathology period, um, that shows up everywhere. If you do, you do a black comedy, pathology shows up. You do any type of white movie, they have racial stereotypes throughout the movie. That's just, that's just in the background everywhere. Well, that's, that that's, as, as Chris would say, it's baked in. But the question that we have, see, there was a period in time, like if you go back and you look at some of those black exploitation films from the 70s, there's a couple of guys, I forget the one guy in particular, he graduated from Juilliard. Like, like my man was like, a serious actor, but he was playing like Blackula and stuff, right? Because he couldn't get a gig anywhere else. He had to pay his family, so he had to do these kinds of roles. But we've evolved to a point now 
where if you're offered a role that is pathological to a certain extent, right, that you would hope that people would understand that that image can be very, you know, detrimental to young Black people and Black folks in general who are consuming it. And so the, the larger question that I ask, you know, vis-a-vis the boys' quote is, to what extent do individual Blacks in Hollywood who are on a microphone or whatever art that they may be creating have responsibility to the Black image in the roles that they take? Sister Toy. Okay, this reminds me of a talk I attended, um, Viola Davis and Denzel Washington. And they were talking about when they were playing opposite each other uh, in Fences, but they were fielding questions about their film roles. And Viola Davis said something extremely powerful. She said, rare is it that she would be offered a script to consider a role where she was portrayed as a whole human being, that typically the role would be to enhance a white person, Mm -hmm. so supporting actress, or she would say partial nudity or a maid or a prostitute, or, you know, you know what that looks like. Um, And Denzel talked about how early on he had some really difficult decisions because he was a stage actor. He could do Shakespeare. He could do all of this fine art. Um, And he was offered these roles that were, he felt less than, but this tension between trying to feed their family or eat themselves and having enough courage and intestinal fortitude to turn things down um, with the hope that eventually they would be offered a role that would allow them to use all of their skills, flex all their muscles. You know, they have evolved. Um, they're in a better place now. But going back to this problem, what about the writers and the stories? I wonder how many other Black Panther scripts are sitting dusting on a shelf or sitting in somebody's inbox that can't move past the gate. Right. But, we and, don't know. Yeah, but I, on one end, there's a, the internet has made storytelling very democratic, right? It's leveled the field. You may not get, one of the things that I think that we, we put our minds into in terms of an expectation is a certain level of popularity. Like if you don't reach a certain threshold, you're not anything. And so if you're not on the big screen somewhere that you haven't made it. And one thing that I think COVID has changed because it's shut down the big screen is the expectation of what your film will do. So there are some films that were made for these big, because I remember whatever the the film that, um, what's my man's name, Uh, Tom Hanks made, he was very disappointed that his film had to go to Apple TV, right? (laughs) They were interviewing him and he was like, oh man, like I've been downgraded. Like I don't get to be on the big screen. And so, uh, but I think that there's some great storytelling going on out there. I saw a film on Netflix. um, It's a film with, um, I forget who it was, the the woman that's on uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, Sashir, is that her name? And, and the guy, um, uh, I forget his name, uh, uh, Tone, what's his name? Okay, are you, the woman, what does woman look like? Uh, she got natural hair, uh, brown skin, Sashir, oh, Zameda, I think is her name. Yeah. Is that her name? Sashir. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, it wasn't the greatest movie in the world, but it was a great movie about a black family and some and black love and black romance. So it's one of those things, one of the things I always look for in a piece is, and, and Haroon, you talk about this all the time, or like Zora Neale Hurston is like, who are we when we are not black, but when we are culturally black and we are just who we are, but not necessarily looked at as black. 
you know, what are the stories we tell or what are the things that we do? We don't, we don't have to apologize for our blackness. And one of my the way, favorite- the way, the way I would put that, Dre, is yes. like, who, who are black people when we shut the door from white life? When right. we go home, when we're no longer thinking about, you know, what, when we're uncensored from white eyes, like, who are we? How do we treat each other? Do we love each other? Do we mistreat each other? How do we act? What do we talk about? Those type of things. Because a lot of times we tell the story in the backdrop of racism, right? That, that we're dealing with some epic struggle um, with some white person. And then, so what happens in a lot of those stories, white people end up dominating the story anyway. Right. When, when the mission was is to get away and, and to talk about our own lives and talk about who we really are. And, and even if they're not in the movie, and if the subject of race or racism is there, it's like one of my good friends who's a playwright, when I first started trying to write a play, he would tell me, he says, the way that you develop a character in the play to let people know who they are is that you talk about them when they're not in the room, right? And so a lot of movies that have to deal with blackness that don't have white characters in them, but they are black people that are dealing with racism is talking about white people when they're not in the room, right? And how they're being treated. And so whiteness is, as you said, is still a character inside of the film. But the real question is, so Chris, where, where are you on this in terms of, uh, of the responsibility? Talked about this a lot. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I can see both sides of the argument. I'm just not, I just hate to suppress art. You know, I mean, like, if you look at, like, like Du Bois says, like, it's all about balance, I think, because, you know, when you say one side strips the other side silent, they're not really historically been stripping us silent. They've just been letting one narrative in, which might even be worse. But the other side isn't stripped at all. So I'm 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 thinking like my dream is to have the other side not be stripped at all too, instead of. But I know to get there we gotta, of course, like usual, pay some prices, just like the Jackie Robinson conversation where, you know. You gotta pay the price of admission, unfortunately. But I just, it just pains me to say that, you know, if your image of who you are is somehow offensive to others, you can't present art. That kind of. Well, I, I don't think art. it's. If, I, it, think it, the boys, I think the boys agrees with him. The boys was saying that, that who dominates the propaganda uh, landscape is white folks, for better or worse, for what they say about them themselves and what they say about everybody else, including black folks. And divorce well, is well, saying let me, that, let me interject. I don't care if I don't care if white people are caught up in this whole um, this positive supremacist white supremacy image of themselves. What I care is about what black people are doing. And right. that let we should turn out the quote, Haroon. I mean the actual quote. It's it's not the positive propaganda of people who believe white blood divine infallible and holy to which I object. It is the denial of a similar right of propaganda to those who believe black blood human, lovable and inspired with new ideals for the world. And so in, in the vein of what Du Bois is saying there is, yeah, we have that other side of the story, which is the white, you know, what I call the big white lie, the white supremacy thing. And we also have the flip side of that coin, which is black inferiority and black pathology. But where's the story of black blood being human, lovable and inspired? And, and my thing is, because we have, in order, 
like one of the things we talk about in, in eradicating racism, we're not talking about, e you have to have equity in order to get to equality, which means that in order to balance the scales, you can't just wave a magic wand and say, okay, everybody's equal now. You have to take some, at some resources here and overcompensate for those who have actually been disenfranchised over a period of time to help get them to the starting line of where everybody else is. And the question is, do we deserve or need to have some level of equity in the black image, meaning that our image has been so negatively portrayed for so long that we have to be, my, my, my point in all of this is we have to be extremely careful, particularly those people who are, who, are, who are not worried about feeding their family, who are already stable in their careers and who already have some things, to not take roles that, particularly if you are very popular, that can hurt little young black kids who are watching this, hurt their own self-image. And, and one thing you gotta give Brother Chadwick Boseman supreme props for, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen a movie where he that he could not be proud of in terms of the black image. And, and keeping his standards high and and who knows how long, you know, how many, uh, you know, hungry nights he had <laughs> before he got to some of the work that that put him on a bigger screen. But, you know, going back to something you were saying, Andre, about um, you know, the definition of success for a film, that people who, who refuse to lower their standards and are not looking for affirmation um, from white people can still go ahead and make their art, but the, the difference is the, the impact and the metrics. So that's the question for all of you is, you know, what is the definition of a successful film? Is, should it be based on reach? Well, I, I think that success is, is a very fleeting construct, right? And the thing is, I think about it with my writing. Um, I always say that if I knew everybody in the world was going to read what I wrote, and if I only thought one person in the world was going to read what I wrote, if I change what I wrote, then that's on me, right? Number one. So some level of integrity in the story that you're going to tell. And the second one is, you don't know what your thing is going, how it's going to impact. And you may have more impact for that one person that read your story or is impacted by your, your art than you would have had if a million people saw it. You just don't know, because that one person, it could have made the difference between life and death with them. They could have decided not to kill themselves that night. And how do you quantify that? You know? no, but that, we live in a capitalistic society that, that gives metrics of what you just talked about, Sister Toy, which is money, people, and all of, all of those kind of sort of tangible mathematical that's uh, things. That's how Hollywood counts it. Hmm? That's the way Hollywood counts yes. it. Yeah. You know, how many millions at the box office? But if we decide that we're going to turn and look in another direction for impact in terms of, you know, changing lives or opening doors for other people, and most of these blockbuster hits, you know, um, Black Panther included, they didn't come out of the gate expecting for it to perform the way it did. They were shocked. Uh, you know, they had hoped. I think, you know, right. people always hope. Same thing with Get Out. I think, you know, that was a surprise on a lot of right. different levels. But these are people who had the guts to say, I'm going to dream bigger and do something completely different. And it turned out to be a box office hit. Yeah, and it became a hit because Chris went and saw it three times, but he only saw it once. He just went and gave him his money and said, hey, I want to vote three times. He, you're acting like our president said, you voted three times, buddy. No, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to say, though, like, what, what I never really... Uh, understood till this moment, till uh, Miss Toy said it. But like, I mean, I have these Black Panther comic books. Like, I was a huge comic book reader as a child, and honestly, Black Panther was like, you know, 
that was like the rich food orange juice for other reasons. That was like that wasn't a huge comic book, you know, especially yeah. in the Avengers. And so to her to say that they didn't expect it to be that big. And that's serious because, I mean, nobody I mean, nobody I knew was really, you know, dying to get the next Black Panther comic book. Right. They were dying to get Spider-Man, Iron Man, Incredible Hulk. And the fact that this one pretty much grossed the most as a solo uh, superhero movie is incredible, and it's and it's a black person. That's like it's like like she said, it's like amazing. They didn't they didn't, they had no clue that that it would be this huge, probably. No idea. Right, but I I think the I think if the boss was alive today, what he would be concerned about is um, whether you can replicate that. In other words, those type of movies as it stands now requires us to get permission from white institutions, from Hollywood, right? It, to be green-lighted. And I think Ms. Toy's point about uh, what's going to make the most impact, This I don't think the point is, is to shut down what all kinds of artists are doing, a lot of great things, little small movies, short stories, novels, plays, you know, street theater. All of those things are great. All of those things are wonderful, right? But the boss was saying that the problem is, is the problem that we're trying to solve with black art is this negative self-image that black people have of themselves and self-hatred. And where do we get the biggest bang for the buck? Where do we make the biggest, like, like you said, Dre, no doubt someone can read an article or something that may change their life in a big way. But while we're here talking about it, the real question is, um, you know, where's the biggest impact? Where, where the biggest progress that we can make? If we're trying to solve this problem, if we're not trying to wait another 75 years to get where we need to go, how do we go about that? And Du Bois says that we should concentrate on those things that are within our power to do. Right. So the Tyler Perry's of the world are super duper important. Right. Because he has a whole apparatus. We may not like some of the negative, some of the stereotype imagery that he comes. So maybe the answer is is replicating the Tyler Perry's of the world and convincing them to put put in their art more positive black self-image. Well, and and so I you think know doing this, Lena Waif is one person. Yeah. Yes, he's got some good stories. Absolutely doing some game-changing work around telling Black stories, showing full ranges yeah. of different kinds of people. And something that she does after, um, well, she was doing it when The Shy was on. So after an episode would, would end, well, she was going straight to her IG Live, and she was having conversations, taking questions from the public and, and with her actors. And she spoke about how powerful it was to see you know, two Black people in love. Yeah. Um, and that's not something that typically uh, Hollywood is paying for. And some of the films that she has done, she has been insistent, and she's doing fellowships and bringing you know, new filmmakers along. But she does talk about how she does not lower her standards, and she walks in and sits at these long boardroom tables and tells them, this is how it's got to be. Yeah, she's got the, the Black Golden Girls coming out. Um, she sure does. Yeah, yeah, she's doing that. She's a great storyteller. Right. But, I think, but I think one of the things that's, more so than telling positive stories about Black people, I, I always say that there are, you know, people can teach you two things, what to do and what not to do. And the most important lessons in life are what not to do, because what not to do can kill you, right? And so 
uh, it's not so much up front to tell positive stories, but it's to quell the negative ones, is to keep the negative ones out of the purview of young people because it's, it will continue to destroy their self-image. Like when I, one of the things that Cheryl and I did with our kids when we were growing up is I would not let them watch television. They only watched what we allowed them to see because we knew that their minds were very malleable and there were certain images we didn't want them to see. We had black art on the wall. And the one thing that we allowed them to see, uh, you know, beyond sort of regular children programming, which we didn't give them freedom a lot of, is, you know, of course, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna take a hit for this now, but this was back in the 90s, was the Cosby Show, right? My kids have seen every episode of the Cosby Show on repeat. I don't know how many times, and they're uh, 27, 24, and 21. So, you know, the Cosby Show ended in 1990-what? It came out in 80, 92. Like, my kids weren't even born yet. My first child was born in 93. And so, but they know every one of those episodes. And the importance of, for that and for them is what it, what it did was it, it allowed them to see a family that was unapologetically Black culturally, that didn't run around talk about, be, talk about being Black. They just were Black, right? And they lived in a world that wasn't a Black world, but they existed as themselves inside of it. And I can't tell you how important that was, right, for their own psyche, because they were able to see it and live it in a certain type of way. See, you two don't have kids, so you can't speak on well, it. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I remember um, in the late 80s, I was in a Big Brother, Big Sister mm -hmm. program. And uh, the girl that I was the big sister of was nine. And I would go to pick her up. And, uh, you know, she lived over in a rough section of town when I was li living in Jersey City. And when I brought her into my apartment, which I thought was fairly humble, but it was renovated brownstone, she walked in and said, this is just like the Cosby show. Wow. <laughs> and she yeah. just didn't know Black people right. live like that. Right. Right. So for her, right. where she lived, that was very aspirational. Right. Yeah, and, you, and the Cosby Show did that for a whole generation. Well, well let me ask you, Chris, because you're the baby of the bunch. Did you did you watch the Cosby Show as a as a adolescent growing up? Oh yeah, weekly. Didn't miss the show. I and, knew and, it because after it went off, we had to go to bed. In a different world. How old were you when the Cosby Show was on? Well, I was. What was it? That's the '80s, right? Eighty. Eighty. It was eighty-four to ninety-two. Yeah, that's, for me, that's four to twelve. Wow. Damn, I'm old. <laughs> I'm old, man. <laughs> so, um, but I want to I want to switch subjects a little bit. Haroon, you you you've mentioned a couple of times this whole notion about replication, right? It's like right. how do we replicate ourselves so that the continuum, you know, the, so that the circle remains unbroken, and you know, a a corollary to art, a sister to art, if you will, is sports, and. Uh, Sister Osaka, Naomi Osaka, won her third Grand Slam uh, yesterday. We're recording on Sunday here. And um, uh, that's her third. And, you know, Serena lost to Azarenka, I guess. So people were wanting to see the Serena versus Osaka version too. But, you know, what's interesting is that Venus and Serena, uh, when they look back, when they both hang up their, their sneakers and put their racket up, and sit down and don't play anymore professionally, they can have complete and total confidence that they've completely replicated themselves in a lily white sport. Because in the, in the upper echelon of, of women's tennis, you have Naomi Osaka, 
you have Sloan Stevens, you have Coco Golf, you have um, Madison Keys, and I forget what's the left-handed young lady's name. I forget her name. Um, yeah, I know who you're talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, forgive me for not remembering her name, but I mean, that's five. You know, that's five of them, five or six that are. You know, who will be. And, and chances are when Serena Quinston, Naomi, or maybe a Coco or something will be number one in the world, you know? And that has to be a great feeling, not only for the two of them, but for their father, you know, who did this. So my question is, um, number so number one, you see that with women in, in tennis, but you don't see that at all with men in, in tennis. And so, um, and, and a lot of people say because there's barriers to entry and all these other kinds of things. Why is it that their success didn't, didn't bleed over into men? When my, the reason I think so is because there's not a man for little boys to look up to, right? Um, but why did their success, was it really successful with women and with girls? And it, we, don't have, we don't see the similar thing over in, on the men's side. Well, Jay, I would say that... Um because the, the Williams sisters, they're unapologetic, unapologetically black, right? You know what I'm saying? Black women, they're authentic, right? There's no accident that, um, that Mr. Williams is their father, right? And that he was a strong personality and that he let, he protected them during the early days that he was on the tour, right? And anytime, his daughters faced racism, he was quick to point it out. I think that that's what the, the real difference between the Williams sisters and the Tiger Woods. Oh, yeah, Tiger's a whole other story. So it's, it's do you think, uh, Sister, Sister Tori, she, she can speak on this sort of authentically because her son uh, is a major league soccer uh, player. He's a professional soccer player in major league uh, soccer. And uh, he played, all sports except for football, right? Uh, growing up, you know, he was in a little bit. I actually wrote an article about her son for ESPN's The Undefeated, if you want to go check it out. He's a, a sensational, uh, not only a sensational athlete, but a, a fine young man as evidenced by, I'm sure you hear in his mother and you could tell she raised a fine young man. But, but speak a little bit from your own perspective. Why do you think that's the case? Well, when I think of raising black boys in this community and, and what is celebrated in the black community, typically it's team sports over individual sports for what we're familiar with. And typically it's football and basketball. And when children, you know, you're trying to keep them busy and you want them to try a little bit of everything. Um, my son that we're, we speak of, he was an incredibly good lacrosse player. He was an amazing hockey player, really into skateboarding and snowboarding. And we're talking about like the ramps and the flipping and all of that. Just, a complete athlete. But there was a lot more community and family celebration on the basketball court when he found out he had a great jump shot and a huge range and could hit threes from all over the place. And so eventually, seven days in the week, and once you get good, very demanding, um, soccer and basketball stayed. And for a year, he gave up the soccer because it wasn't as exciting. You know, you're in an AAU, you know, you're getting the free Nike shoes. That is a, where a lot more cultural applause came from right so i think that has something to do with right. it and that there was no aspirational um person to look up to as well 
but you know, it's interesting. Your your son ended up doing what it is that um, I've, I indicated for some of the actors and whatever. It's like, don't go and chase the thing. Right. You know, chase something else that you may not necessarily get rewarded for as much as the other thing, but it's going to give you a give you that you know that feeling of integrity or the thing that you really are about. You think that was well, a big sacrifice know, for him to do that? You know, when we're talking about kids that are kind of 16, 17, and, and colleges come calling, they still are thinking like 16-year-old boys. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about where you committed and what you're declaring on social media. Had there been, um, you know, someone for him to look up to, and it was Thierry Henry, who was uh, mm -hmm. uh, the French soccer player and plays for the New York Red Bulls. That was a person who became a role model. Um, um, soccer and the World Cup became places to look, but there was no one singular Black right. American right. person to look up to. So I think kids have to look around and figure out where the inspiration's coming from. The Williams sisters, not only for Black kids, but for girls everywhere, gave girls a sports option when girls don't have as many sports options. So, so it does get complicated because it's almost some of the opposite where um, a black boy might get teased for, you know, spending too much time on a tennis court, walking around in white shorts and, you know, at a country club, seen as soft. Hey, so, Chris, if, uh, if Alan Iverson were a, uh, the equivalent of, one of Serena Williams, would you be out there with a, a tennis racket right now? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, I mean, it. It's all the cultural stuff is true, but I think she's right. There's an element of sexism in that too, because, like in high school, there were girls that looked up to Allen Iverson. You know, there were girls that come to school and could hoop and would wear an Iverson jersey. But I think men are at a place that no, I'm not going. You know, I'm not going to look up to a woman and try to be. There's a lot of sexism in it. I think personally. Right. I mean, you know, it's just my theory. But no, if, if there was a LeBron with a tennis racket out here, oh come on, we be come on. You know how that goes. Right. But, well, to, to the point of sexism, you know, we get this GOAT conversation, you know, you throw LeBron and Jordan and they throw Tom Brady in there like the GOAT. The clear GOAT of, of the, only, the person that I've seen that is still alive playing any sport that is the greatest by far is Serena Williams. It ain't even close, Not right? Close. You can't even put Jordan right. or Tom Brady anywhere in the conversation with her. Right. For as long as she, she's got Tom Brady's longevity. Right. She's got Michael Jordan's dominance. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And she don't need a Pippen. <laughs> she right. is Pippen. She's Jordan and Pippen. Right. Well, you know, Dre, when you talk about, you know, positive um, self-image and we talk about the impact the art can make, um, then when you talk about sports, one can argue that perhaps sports was more of a source through the history of, you know, Black American experience, it was more of a source of positive images, positive role models for Black folks to follow through, right? And this is another, another avenue in which we can think about and deal with the problem that Malcolm X laid out, the problem of self-hatred, the problem that W.E.B. Du Bois laid out, the problem of uh, Black folks not using the media, not using art to, to dispel a lot of negative self-image that Black folks have of their own race. Right. So, yeah, you got Jim Brown, you got Muhammad Ali, you got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you got a lot of sport Jackie Robinson over the period of times, because that, that was the one 
arena, if you will, that black folks were allowed to excel in and did and did uh, push to the pinnacle. So when you when we talk about replication, um, and you brought him up earlier, Brother Shabazz, uh, Tiger Woods, right? Why is Tiger not replicated himself for uh, a, a young black male? Why is there why is there no male equivalent of Naomi Osaka? Why is there no male equivalent of uh, Sloane Stevens or Coco Golf? There may be, maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. In, uh, golf, in golf, I mean. Go ahead, I think Chris. That, I think that wall of oppression is a little harder to knock down myself. <laughs> what wall? You mean the difference between golf. tennis and golf? Yeah, I think so. In what way? I mean, I'm being very, you know, comical, but if you look at the history, I mean, the stuff Tiger went through with the the fried chicken comments. You you and, don't think Serena and the, and the whole don't think Serena of, got that kind of stuff too? Yeah, but the whole concept of caddying and like there's golf courses I can't walk on right now in America. And I mean this I can't you can't say that about tennis. They courses. got they got tennis courts at country clubs too. No, I'm just saying, but like <laughs> golf, I feel like that's a heavier like I have a like I said, I live in a ninety five percent black community. There's tennis courts everywhere. But, you know? But there's a, I lived in a 100% black community in Louisville when, before I moved to New York, and there was a, a golf course right across the street from my house. And yeah, I'm, same here in Baltimore. I'm just, right. I'm just saying, I think that you don't agree that the wall is a little thicker? I, I believe the wall is a little thicker, but, but also I think it's a cop-out to a certain extent because they're right now, when the, at the time that Tiger Woods started playing tennis, excuse me, golf, number one, there's all kinds of black folks grown black men who never thought about playing golf a day in their life, who got a, a set of golf clubs and started playing golf. And those black men had black sons. Mm -hmm. And those black sons had access to the same thing that those black men had access to. But the, the question is whether that son gravitated towards it. I think they would have gravitated towards it more because of their fathers, because of Tiger Woods, because when a little black girl like Naomi Osaka and her father, who is kind of like Richard Williams, looks at the screen and says, wow, that's me up there. My son is not looking at the screen and saying, singing Tiger Woods and say, wow, that's me up there, daddy. He got options, though, man. He's got like a, a woman doesn't have those same options. Like your son can look up and see a black man on top of almost every sport, you know, where golf like is just Tiger and I feel like that wall is still thicker to me do, than do, there's other options is what I'm saying. But at one point, there, it was just, um, you know, the, the Williams sisters, right, out there alone doing their thing. I mean, it was great. It was fantastic. Just like Pataga made a big, big impact. But I think the, to answer your question, Dre, I think that the reason why a lot of young Black kids today and 20 years ago didn't really catch on to golf, because I think for whatever reason, Black people as a whole, while we cheer for Tiger Woods, we don't necessarily relate to him, right? He, he doesn't, and you know, vice we don't versa. see him as, we don't see him as, in, as a genuine Black person in, in that sense. When he came out with that Kablasian remark that he's not Black, he's Kablasian, Caucasian, yes. Black and Asian, this, this type of thing, then he was just trying to opt out, opt out the race. We've seen this time and time again. Black folks been trying to opt out the race um, since post-slavery, right? This type of thing. And, and listen, more power to them. But I think those are the kind of things that sort of turned Black people off 
from Tiger Woods, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's right. Is the reason why <laughs> most black folks like myself on a Sunday be rooting for Tiger Woods like there's no tomorrow. But you know, I wrote a, a I wrote an article for the Undefeated as well called "Black People Love Tiger," though he doesn't necessarily love us back. And also, while I'm on it, I want there's an article I wrote called "Mason Toy," the one I was telling about uh, Sister Toy's son. Mason Toy is a different kind of one and done baller. So if you can check those out. I, I think you would really enjoy the piece about Sister Toy's son. But that whole notion of black people love Tiger, though he doesn't really love us back. I remember, and I ended the article this way because I was writing the article in my my seven-year-old grandson was in the uh, was in the room. He was he was he was hanging out with us, and um, and I was writing the article. He says, he says, uh, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm writing an article." He said, "Who are you writing about?" I said, "Tiger Woods." He said, "Who's Tiger Woods?" And 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 I wrote this article when he won the Masters a couple of years ago, right? When he came back in the big the comeback, and he and he looked at me. He said, "Who's Tiger Woods?" and uh, I said, uh, you know, he's a, and it had just ended. We were watching it. <laughs> it just said, I mean, he, he wasn't paying any attention to it, but it was on TV. And then, uh, uh, and I asked him, I said, um, I, I said, but who's your, who's your favorite basketball player? And he's like, Steph Curry, duh. And in the article, I'm sort of comparing Steph and Steph's accomplishments to um, the Tigers' accomplishments and how sort of ubiquitous among not just little black kids, just little kids in general. Steph Curry has become. But the, the question becomes, let's, we don't have to go as far from a cultural, take a big cultural leap to say, let's put Allen Iverson or LeBron James on you know, and make him Tiger Woods. What if Steph Curry were Tiger Woods, right? Take Tiger Woods and give him Steph Curry's upbringing, give him his sensibility, give him his thing. Do you think that would make a difference in whether little black kids played or not? Before anybody answers, I also want to say the elephant in the room is that golf is a very boring sport. To <laughs> <laughs> I just want to put that out there. But so okay. what, I, I understand that it, it, it can be slow to watch, and I agree with you completely. <laughs> However, living with, uh, you know, my husband and both of my sons have all been athletes. You know, my husband came up very humble means, played football, basketball, and, and uh, baseball. And now is a golfer and says it's the most challenging sport he's ever played. I'll tell you a pivotal moment for golf for black people was watching that Michael Jordan was so passionate and needed to get on the golf course to clear his mind. My son, who's the pro soccer player, decided he bought him some golf clubs. And, and since that whole Last Dance series came on, he goes and plays golf. And he'll send videos of his golf swing, how he's clearing his mind. So it's, it's all in context. Um, I think that there's twofold, you know, Chris was talking about how thick the wall is. It's, is that a space for us? You know, when you see Michael Jordan with golf clubs, that's very different than some people watching Tiger Woods, you know, getting his jacket at the masters. One person seems a lot more like us. And also I need, what I, I've never played a, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skilled on the mini golf course, but I've never played an actual 18 hole game of golf and i mean but well, what is the price of admission here too like the the, the the williams sisters need a racket and a ball and a court like for golf don't i need like a membership i need no many, man there are public public golf courses how many, club, right, how many clubs do i need dre you play how many golf? Club, it, i mean you could go to a uh you can go to a see, um see that see all that no what's the name of the uh, of a uh, 
What's the name? I don't. They, no, you can go hit ball. Top golf, right? Top golf. You can go to those kind of. Yeah, no. but that's not an eighteen hole but what, game of golf, is what I'm. I'm, tell, I'm sorry. I don't buy the we can't afford argument for black people anymore. I don't buy that. No, now, because the, there's plenty of black people who can't afford. That's and guess true. what? And guess what? Even though Richard Williams taught his sisters how to play, I mean, his, his daughters how to play golf in Compton, you cannot make it in golf unless you get into one of those. They are complete anomalies. All of those girls that I just named, all of them came through those tennis academies in Florida. And believe me, they ain't cheap. You got to move your entire family down there. Right. right? To you get can, good, I need a racket and a ball. And I got a court right there. I have to get good at golf. Get, you can I get good at the clubs. little public golf course. And I need some clubs. In your neighborhood. Right? I need some clubs. They, they look expensive. I have no idea. That's what, I'm really legit asking these questions. I have no idea how much a golf club costs. No, I, I, I get you. But how you much do some Jordans cost? I don't have to wear Jordans <laughs> to play basketball. <laughs> But you probably got some, and yeah, you ain't I'm no playing, good. I'm playing some fish here. It's better to this crossover. <laughs> but you know, here's the thing, right? Now, while a lot of people, Tiger Woods made golf a much more popular sport and made it much more watchable, not just for black folks, but for white folks all um, across the board. Now, here's the thing, though. Um, if you don't relate to a sport and they don't score very often, a person could be turned off from it. Let's take the most popular sport in the world by far, probably more popular than basketball, football, soccer. and hockey, all put together, yeah. is soccer. Soccer. The no, original the, the call, it, call it by its real name, right, the, the right. football. Yeah, right. The original, but most Black Americans who look at that sport, we can't even watch a whole game because it's boring. A what match. It? It's a match. They just kick the ball around. If, and if the if the game ends two to one, wow, man, that was really come on, man. Get your words right. It's match. Be, you know, you, Sister Tori's on the on the on the thing. We got to we got to respect. It. Match. Yeah, it's a match. Yes, a match, right? A football and, match. Don't call it soccer, man. Come on. A football match, right? A football match. Now here's the thing, right? We can't. So if we played soccer and we grew up with it, we would probably be at the edge of our seat and watching those games, even if the game ends one nil. That type of thing, right? So you got your nail. So that's not really that's. I don't think that's the real, real problem here. Pro, Tiger Woods, it doesn't help him that he doesn't have any black friends. <laughs> no, he hangs around with white boys twenty four seven, and all kinds of white boys since. That's true. Ouch. It's true. I said that in the article. It's true. The day at Stanford, right? All of his. White friend, and matter of fact, he had a black girlfriend at Stanford, right? That, you know, stopped the presses, right? The, the soul sister actually gave an interview or two talking about how sold out Tiger was at Stanford University, this type of thing. And then she like read in the newspaper that he had hooked up with this white woman. I think he was technically still with her, who knows? But the other thing um, is, is that Tiger Woods he can be tone deaf. Just a few months ago, he was playing Trump. He was playing the, before the coronavirus. He was playing golf with Trump, and this is not the first time he played with this. Then this man is a monster, right? An enemy to black and brown people in this country, and he just goes out and openly plays with that's this not, guy. That's not going to win him any any points. There's nothing to it, right? And so, so from a that perspective, right? 
I don't, I think a, a lot of, because really when you, when you come, when it comes to games like soccer and, I mean, excuse me, not soccer, but tennis and golf, you have to have a big, heavy investment from, from the parents, right? This type of thing. Basketball and football, that's provided for, but, and you would think that it wouldn't be that much of an investment, but a lot of times when you look at even white folks, you'll find when it comes to tennis and golf, you'll find that the parents were very, very involved. Well, but one of the things Everyone that- has not won over the parents. Well, one of the things that Sister Toy can attest to this, and then I wanna, I wanna after you, you comment on this, I wanna switch to our last, our last subject here. But more and more, if you wanna become a collegiate or professional athlete, you know, kids who don't have parental support are not making it anymore because it's so specialized and it's a year round event that you're, you're, when's the last time you really saw somebody like a LeBron James make it to the top that's an American, right? You see that for Europeans and Africans. When's the last time we saw a black American that made it as the number one or the number two pick who was from the other side of the tracks? So speak on that for a second, Sister Toy. It's true. Um, it starts from, you know, you, you can't really start late and catch up or it's extremely difficult all the barriers to entry. So even if you're gonna try to try out for your high school team, kind of like how Michael Jordan was a late bloomer, um, there's kids who've been traveling all over the country by that age. So in terms of first exposure to, you know, going back to the concept of golf and I, I can't watch a golf match, people aren't watching, they're not watching that in their homes on TV. So that's, first of all, you know, there's lack of exposure of imagining it. Then it's, is it in your neighborhood? You know, in a lot of these white neighborhoods, that's, you know, what people are doing is soccer in the spring. They don't want the kids with contact sports. That feels safe. And then it gets into very high-priced academy sports. It's not really handled through a public school or whatever the school team is. So you, you add up all of that. And if you're 14 or 15 and thinking that you're going to try to make it as a soccer player, your ship sails. You know, you're, you're and that's true of basketball now, too. I mean, it's kind of hard for, you know, these kids, the same thing is happening to AAU. These kids are playing eight, nine, 10 years old. They're being, it's so specialized now. I mean, one of the things that, you know, 25, 30 years ago, when people played, they played all three sports, baseball, basketball, and football. But the interesting thing about the imagery, about what a child can imagine, you mentioned your grandson at age seven, he knew what basketball player he admired. Right. Right. Uh, that are, you know, two and three years old in their home, they're seeing football, basketball, whatever's right. on TV, they're getting the imagery and they're not getting as much of it with the visibility for these other more elite sports. And if you go, yeah, you yeah, go right. to South America and you turn on the television, what are you going to see? Football. Watching football. And, <laughs> <Goal>. <laughs> and Dre, listen, yeah. um, you know, basketball and football, right? Um, whether a kid gets serious about it when they're a teenager or not, but you can't, what was, what is being said, is being said here is that you can't pick up a, a, a golf club or, you know, a racket when you're 15 or 16 years old and think that for the first time and think that you're going to make it right. And for a lot of black kids, you can't be 15, 16 years old and kick a soccer ball for the first time, because around the world, no matter how poor a kid is, they're kicking a soccer ball when they're 
two and three and four years old, right? right? And there's a skill, different skill level to that. And whether they, they are late bloomer, but they've had all of that other practice before they got there. All right. So I want to wrap up because Sister Toy is a visual art uh, expert, especially as it relates to Negro art, the American Negro in the diaspora, if you will. So I want to I want you to talk a little bit about what you've seen over the years in visual arts as, as it relates to Du Bois's uh, comment about propaganda and the whole notion of dealing with positive black imagery. So uh, this is a very interesting moment that we're having with all of the um, socio-political activities and the way our visual artists are responding either to the pandemic or to the times. Um, I have been back and forth in my mind on whether we are using the platforms, artists are using the platforms or are the platforms using us right now? So I see I've got two gentlemen not far from the Baltimore area one of the most powerful artists right now of our time is Amy Sherald from Baltimore, recently moved to the Northeast. She is the one that painted Michelle Obama's portrait. She painted the cover of Vanity Fair, a beautiful portrait Brianna. of Brianna Thomas, right? So, you, so we know this. Um, the cover of Vogue magazine in the same month, two different covers. We had one done by Carrie James Marshall. There it is, the September mm -hmm. issue and another one uh, Jordan Castile. Wow. So it's ironic, these big publishers, first of all, you can't find these magazines. I, I still haven't been able to get a vanity there. And I wonder, are we using these platforms or are the platforms using us? I'll also mention that on social media, I've heard a lot of Black artists complaining that so many brands and so many of these Fifth Avenue shops that are all boarded up have been texting them and writing them saying, hey, you know, if you could get down there and give us a mural before, the, before we have to, you know, take the boards down, it'd be awesome because Black lives really do matter. And the backlash coming from how are these people, how are visual artists to make money when so many people want to use them for pennies on the dollar of what they're worth? Wow. I mean, I didn't, I didn't wow. think about it like wow. that. Yeah, it is. But I think that the, are you seeing the, um, are you seeing the horizons being broadened? You see more, more black and brown people coming into the visual arts? I do. I absolutely do. I see, I'm seeing whole shows being curated right now. You know, in terms of how are we measuring the success of it? One of the measures is are black people even understanding the greatness coming out of our community right now in terms of um, all of the young artists that are out here doing their thing in all different kinds of art form, 3D, culture, um, uh, sculpture, um, painting and performance art and things that I'm even now just beginning to understand. In addition, there's a fascination with um, any Afro-Caribbean, anything from the African diaspora. But what's been happening over the past, I'd say, five to eight years, is it's been shooting up tremendously in value. So someone who comes out of school, let's say Yale School of Art, you know, the first two years they're out of school, they're struggling. Then they sell a couple paintings and they might sell their paintings for, you know, $3,000. And then that person hangs on to it and resells it at auction and no exaggeration, they're going for 500, 600,000. So this oh, young wow. Jordan Castile, you know, this is um, a painting that she did of the woman in the fashion industry who is demanding 
15% of shelf space go to black designers. So this is a multi-layered story she's telling. But the painter Jordan Castile, um, one of her paintings just sold at auction for $677,000. And so, you know, that, and what that makes me think of is that artists should be like, okay, I'm gonna sell this to you, but I'm gonna get 25% of whatever you sell it for at some point in time. So perfect segue, <laughs> okay. right? You see right here, the problem is that the artist isn't benefiting from the right. reason it's Christie's and Sotheby's. So there's a young woman who just curated a show and I can't remember what the show was called, but it was at Christie's somehow. She got Christie's to give her the space to do an online show of black art. And she wrote into the buyer's contracts that they could not sell it for, if they sold it for more than 15% above what they paid this right. year, that they had to kick it back to the artist. Oh, wow. See that? Hey, right. th th right. hey I love that. I and love she, that. Um, she's 24 years old. How she got to curate this show is, is complex. So right. we're seeing it being written about. There was an article in the New York Times a few months ago about black galleries. One of the things that breaks my heart is that most of the collectors who are holding these works, a lot of them send them to storage because they're right. just- It's, it's, it's just an asset. Um, but it's not ending up in the hands of black people. Right. And so, you know, I'm really trying to help black people, the everyday person understand that art collecting might be about buying something for a hundred bucks because this guy can use it to eat. But on a, on a worldwide scale, the last point I want to make is that um, the art fairs in New York, in Miami, in Vienna, uh, Venice, in um, Basel, Switzerland, now are um, clamoring to get black galleries to show up. And there's a whole new art fair called the 154 Art Fair mm -hmm. that started in London. The uh, 1 colon 54, 54 standing for the 54 countries on the continent of Africa. They put that thing together five years ago based on street artists that they would just grab and people they saw on social media and Instagram from all different African countries. And now that has replicated to New York, to Marrakesh. They are probably gonna be doing one in Paris. And it has turned into a whole art fair around African art, but we're not there buying it. Yeah, but what's interesting is that in the aesthetic, sort of there's the beauties in the eye of the beholder, so if a speak, a a piece speaks to you right. in a certain way that brings some value to you in an aesthetic, it doesn't really matter how little or how much it costs. But the secondary market that you speak of is commodifying things in a certain way. And as a marketplace that are saying certain artists are more valued than others. Right. And it has to do with, and I think you, you correct me if I'm wrong, more than the aesthetic itself. It's on some arbiters of what's good and what's bad saying this and driving, driving the price and the scarcity and, and the capitalism thereof. Similar to, you know, uh, how much a record got played on the radio, right? Mm -hmm. They could decide who was going to be getting the awards, what's going to be a right. hit. There are definitely influencers. And what we're starting to see is some of those walls being dismantled in terms of the critics, in terms of the curators, the big museums starting to hire curators of color so that we're starting to see more in the shows. Um, that's how these artists are able to make a living, but also how their value is retained. Well, thank you, Sister Tori. Well, we're going to wrap things up right now. You you just gave us an, an earful and, and, a, and, a, and a lesson right there. Are there any artists that we should be checking out before we go? Other than the two you know, ones you showed us? I feel that the greatest painter of our time is Carrie James Marshall. K-E-R-R-Y. Carrie James Marshall. Um, he's a gentleman out of the Midwest. He's 
age probably approaching 60, but he had this cover of Vogue magazine. Right. What I love about him is he paints black people black. Right. There's he no uses mistaken. black paint. Right. And he has studied the European masters as to how to get just enough shadow and light so that you can see the figures. And um, I, I just feel like what he has, you know, in terms of what he's saying and his command, he's one to watch and pay attention to. Well, we really appreciate you educating us and uh, bringing, bringing a much needed different voice to the hard ankles on this show. And uh, so we, you have an open invitation. I hope you will join us again. I hope you had a good time. You were definitely enlightening. It's an absolute us. pleasure. My, my chance to chop it up and bring you the female perspective and also to have you guys um, have me on my toes. I wasn't able to sit back this time. Well, that's it. Another show in the can. Thank you out there for joining us today. And thank you, Sister Lynn, for blessing us with your presence. You've been listening to The Hank and Herb Show a podcast where we discuss the problems and the issues of the day, especially those that plague the black community. We don't just discuss the problems, but we offer up solutions that begin with you. The Hank and Herb Show can be found at hankandherb.com. The Hank and Herb Show is also a member of the Educated Guesses family. The show and other content from Educated Guesses can be found at educated-guesses.com please go to educated-guesses.com and sign up for our mailing list to receive episodes of the show in your email inbox, along with a whole host of other great content. You can check out more of Haroon Shabazz's writing at theblackscene.com. That's theblackscene.com. You can check out Chris Fun's writing at fundamentals.com. That's F-U-N-N-D-A-M-E-N-T-A-L-S.com. Again, thank you for listening in, and hopefully we'll see you on the next podcast. In the meantime, stay blessed, be peaceful, and have a wonderful day.